Um, <laughs> I waited and waited and waited for God. At last, he looked. Finally, he listened. He lifted me out of the ditch, pulled me from the deep mud. He stood me up on a solid rock to make sure that I wouldn't slip. He taught me how to sing the latest God song, a praise song to our God. More and more people are seeing this. They, they enter the mystery, abandoning themselves to God. Blessed are you who give yourselves over to God. Turn your backs on the world's sure thing. Ignore what the world worships. The world's a huge stockpile of God wonders and God thoughts. Nothing and no one comes close to you. I start talking about you, telling what I know, and quickly run out of words. Neither numbers nor words account for you. Y'all can join us and sing. Hey, good morning, and welcome to Regeneration. There was like a mini reunion happening here in the middle because Pastor Pat Christ and her husband, and I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking, Roger, I'm so sorry, are here visiting, and um, Pastor Pat was the pastor here at Otterbein um, a few years ago, so... Um, she's back visiting today, which is just, thank you for being here. We're glad to have you. Um, but welcome to Regeneration. At Regeneration, um, we are all about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so it's our hope today that as we sing together and pray and hear from the word of God, that you'll be interrupted. Um, if it's your first time with us, we're so glad that you're here. We'd love for you to fill out a connect card on the back table and take a mug, which is our gift to you. Um, and then we just have a couple of quick announcements um, tonight. At the Grace Campus at 5 p.m., we're going to be setting up for the rummage sale. So anybody who, you know, if you're just bored on a Sunday night and want something to do, come to an on-air-conditioned building and move stuff. It's going to be really fun. So Kyle and I will be there. Um, but we would love for you to come and help. Um, it raises money for the Grace Campus Food Pantry. So there really is a purpose in what we're doing. And the student circle will actually be there as well um, as a service project. So we'll be there at 5, and then there the student circle will go out for pizza for dinner after. And Kyle and I will need to eat, so we'll go somewhere as well. So if you come and want to join us for dinner after, you can. Um, yeah, Kyle says, be his friend. Also, AKA, don't make him move all the stuff, is really what he's thinking. Um, and then uh, coming up um, on the September 8th is going to be our recovery rally service opportunity. So we're going to have a table at the recovery rally at the Eastwood Field and um, just want to support our community and those in our community who are walking, um, have walked through drug addiction or alcohol addiction and um, are trying to kind of live a life free from that. And so we'd love for you to come out and join us. We get to give away sunglasses and t-shirts. It's really fun. Um, and if you have kids, there's a lot of kid-friendly stuff to do. So bring them along as well. And then finally, September 9th is our kickoff Sunday. And so that means that Nova will be here in the parking lot with their donuts and their coffee. So um, it's a great week. If you have someone in your life that's kind of been interested in Regen or interested in church, that's a great week to invite them. If for nothing else, for Nova donuts and coffee. I mean, you can't lose. So and um, they can also come and just meet our community and uh, be a part of that. So I'm going to have Zach come up and pray for our offering, and we'll keep going. Nothing like a little bit of show up and pray, right? <laughs> um, if you guys just, I'm going to pass these around, and you guys know the drill. So go ahead and bow your head. Heavenly Father, thank you for meeting with us again today. just appreciate you and uh, just the love that you show us, um, the fact that you are um, who you say you are, and 
and that you're just amazingly intelligent and um, you know what's best for us. You know the good and good and bad things for us. And you do meet us, Father. You are personal. So, Lord, I, we just thank you for that. And we ask that you give us the courage and the strength to continue your good works. So, Lord, I ask that you uh, bless this church and bless this family um, to move out and, and invite people here and uh, just preach your good word to them. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, you um, are really just tender toward us and our weakness, and we're just so thankful for that this morning. God, would you increase our faith as we just hear from you this morning, and would you remind us that when we are weak, we are strong. Thanks for just walking with us, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, y'all. How y'all doing? We good? Oh, kids can go back. That's important to talk about. So that, there they go with Miss Caitlin. Um, hi. All right. Um, if you haven't heard, because you've been living under a rock, we're starting something new this fall. We've got circles, which are kind of similar to small groups, but way different. And really just want to invite you and challenge you that if you have a Tuesday or Wednesday night that you can make free, that you jump into one of those. I'm looking around the room. Bannings are leading one. The Bylers are leading one. And nobody from the other circle is here. So Howland Circle, we're judging you. Hear us through the internet. Um, so Joey and Julia and Harry and Kathy and Art and Pam are leading one. We got our student circle that tonight is doing their first out rhythm. They're going to be serving with us at the uh, food at the rummage sale prep, so that's super cool. So we'll be talking more and more about that this week. We're going to have pictures going up of people who are leading it and what they're excited about on our social media. And if you're not following us on social media or getting our emails, you're just not in the loop. And uh, we don't want to be the church that has 20 minutes of announcements. So um, if you could make sure you're on that, that helps us all be on the same page. So there's that family moment. So let's look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 we're going to look at verses 15 through 23 while we finish up this series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that I find so interesting about Jesus and the way that he's operating in this passage in particular is how he is very good at comforting the afflicted. So you've got these passages like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemaker, and that's comforting the, affli the afflicted, but he also is very good at afflicting the comfortable. He's very good at pushing the envelope. And this, is a pr this whole sermon is a really good example of the ways that Jesus calibrates and combines invitation and challenge, how he calibrates grace and truth. And, 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 and this end of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus calling us to be more than hearers of good ideas, but to be doers of what he has said. And so he ends with these kind of four images or four little pockets, all of which call us to do something based on what he said, to respond, to live, and to act. But also what's interesting about these closing passages is the way that it's also a warning 
a warning. And we see that especially in the first one because what Jesus is trying to underline here is that following Jesus and being an apprentice of the way is more than words or thoughts or even participating in religious things to fulfill religious obligations. It goes deeper. It goes deeper. And so Jesus begins in verse 15 this way. He says, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Answer is no, right? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Go figure. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Jesus begins with that word beware. It means take caution. It means look out. It means uh, take heed. It means danger will Robinson. It's this call to be paying special attention because there are false prophets who look harmless, who seem like they're out to help you, but in fact, they're out to get you. And in our tradition, we don't often use the word prophet to describe somebody in leadership. But in the Gospel of Matthew, all over the place, it uses the word prophet about five, six, seven times. And in all those times, it really broadly means spiritual leadership. So Jesus is warning us against false prophets, against false pastors, against false bloggers, and false authors, and false podcasters and false anyone who designs and anyone who designs themselves to be someone who points the way of Jesus and believe me I'm fully aware as a pastor preaching about false prophets I'm aware of the irony okay it's pretty thick right false teachers false prophets they're spoken about in the, both the old and the new testament these men and women who style themselves to be people who point to god style themselves to be people who speak for god and on god's behalf but people who have other intentions and god's people from old testament to new are warned that not all teachers are created equal not everyone who writes a book not everyone who has a podcast not everybody on your tv who claims to offer you the word of god is is doing so without some other kind of intention. And when the gospel takes root in the Mediterranean world, uh, Paul and the early leaders of the way of Jesus and the church of Jesus find themselves toe-to-toe with these false prophets. So for example, in Philippians 1, Paul says, it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rival, that they do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. He says they preach with selfish ambition and not sincerity. And then in First and Second Timothy, he really digs in because he's writing to Timothy, who's a young guy. Timothy became the pastor of the church in Ephesus sometime in his early 20s. And, and the church in Ephesus, while influential, is being overrun by false teachers and false prophets. And he says, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. See, Paul, always cuddly, always sweet, right? He looks at people in church, he goes, yes, you, your conscience is dead. Uh, And and he goes so far as to say in 2 Timothy 4, 
For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. And this is an adequate description of our time because there is no shortage of podcast and book and speaker and presenter and life coach that you can just for five easy payments of $69.99 become part of this inner click of secret knowledge about whatever it is. And, and what's interesting and why this is especially important for us to heed in this moment is we live in a unique time when there is more media available to Christians than has ever been before. And interestingly, like even if you look at book publishing alone, Christians make up a disproportionate part of the population. We're a tiny little speck, Christians are. But they make up a, a really large amount of the market share of book publishing because Christians are apt to read more than the average person. The average Christian reads more than the average non-Christian in America. And that's because we're, there's this long-stranding tradition of reading and reflection and engaging with content. But in the mix of these authors and blogs and podcasts and books and preachers, what Jesus is calling us to remember is that just because they use Christian words doesn't mean they're accurately describing the way of Jesus. Jesus tells us that we can identify a teacher, a false teacher, by the fruit of their lives. He says that we can identify them, that we can test them, and he makes an interesting statement when he says that words are not enough. Just because they sound like they're using Christian words doesn't mean that they're truthfully and authentically and accurately representing the way of Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield has this awesome book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and she talks about how it is so common in our culture for Christian words to be used in ways that or to use biblical words in ways that the Bible does not want to use them. So our culture is very quick to use words like love and loyalty and peace and justice in ways that the Bible does not mean them to be used. She says they have our vocabulary, but they do not have our dictionary. And here's the deal. This is what false teachers do. They have our vocabulary, but they do not have or dictionary. A great example of this is a New Testament scholar by the name of Marcus Borg. And Marcus Borg has this uh, quote where he says, the resurrection doesn't have to be real for it to be true. He says the resurrection doesn't have to be real for it to be true. Because even if the resurrection doesn't happen, he says the spirit of Jesus is with us. And he doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. He means this cultural drive towards love and acceptance and tolerance and justice is the spirit of Jesus that remains with us even though this historical person never actually rose from the dead. He's using Christian words. He's using our vocabulary in ways that go beyond the way our dictionary would have us define them. And Marcus Borg, though he styles himself and is really well known as one of the most notable scholars on Jesus's historical life, he is far outside the tradition of what we would say is recognizable Christianity. He has our vocabulary, but not our dictionary. So words can't be enough just because you find it in the Christian section at Walmart, just because you find it at the Christian bookstore. There was this bookstore attached to Moody that was connected to where I went to 
did my undergrad. And it was our school bookstore, but it was also just a bookstore. It was Southern Baptist, so, you know, those of you with Southern Baptist roots kind of twitch a little bit. That's okay. And um, there would have some books they would have on the shelves, but it would have this little tag that said, read with discernment, right? Um, I think that's actually good advice. Because just because they use our vocabulary doesn't mean they're using our dictionary. See, Zoe even knows. And, and so Jesus says we can't purely identify a teacher by their words. We can't identify a podcaster or a blogger by their words. We need something else. And so that's something else. I really like how Eugene Peterson does it in the message, um, how he handles these verses. He says, be wary of false teachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off in some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Don't look for charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are, not what they say, is what matters most. And in the original version of my sermon, um, I, I actually called out specific people. Uh, and if, if you're at all familiar with the Christian world, if be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity, doesn't remind you of a specific person who shall go nameless, but may or may not frequently preach in a place called Texas, um, if that doesn't remind you of somebody, you're just not paying close enough attention to this. But, and, I, and the reason I didn't want to call it out is I didn't want to there was a guy that like left my guy's Bible study because I called out a pre preacher that was just like re had really terrible theology, and I was like, I'm not going to apologize for that. It's cotton candy. And um, but but I will say this: if you say, "Hey, I just read a book by somebody," and I just kind of respond with, "Uh huh," that's me saying I don't like them, but I don't know how to not people please in that moment. But if you say, "Hey, I just read this book by somebody," I'm like, "Yes," right? I mean, if you don't know by now that like. When I am emphatic, I am emphatic, right? Like, there's a, all of my nonverbals are like, if I'm quiet, that means something not good, right? Like, if I like it, I'm talking about it. Um, but what I like about this is this idea of Jesus recentering the issue of the teacher, not on their words or the content of their teaching, but the content of their character about their life. It's important that someone who claims to be teaching in the way of Jesus sound like Jesus. That's important, but it's even more important, Jesus says, that their life looks like Jesus's life. And Jesus couldn't be making a more critical point when we think about this cultural moment that we're in where uh, megachurch pastor after megachurch pastor after megachurch pastor is bottoming out and walking away from these things that they started in utter shame because behind the pulpit and behind the veneer of their public life, their marriages were bad and they handled finances and power and sex terribly. I mean, I won't name names, but one of the most well-known pastors of the 90s and early 2000s in America just was like, it came to be found out that over his long career of starting a church of 30,000 people, like, had this background of, like, using his power to coerce women into doing things for him. I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane. And so what Jesus is asking us is to find leaders to find bloggers and podcasters. And this is really hard. Like I, I can't examine a podcaster's life. I can't examine a, a blogger's life. But what we're called to find is not people who can lead an organization, not people who can preach a sermon, but people whose lives are patterned after the life of Jesus. The most important thing I do 
the most important thing I do is build into my life with Jesus, is to build into my marriage, and very soon build into my children. That's it. And I'm not at all saying, again, the irony of this, I have not mastered the way of Jesus. There's, there's sin in my life, and if you work very closely with me, you're very, very aware of that. If you're married to me, you're very aware of that. But what we need to find is leaders who are not, in sheep's, are not wolves in sheep's clothing. We need teachers, Jesus says, who bear fruit. We need teachers who bear fruit. He, he has this idea of bearing fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. He wants us to bear good he wants us to find leaders who bear good fruit. And anytime fruit is used in the New Testament, it kind of has a double meaning. On the one hand, it means like the fruit of a person's life, the fruit of the spirit, love and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Do we have leaders that embody those things? But also does the fruit of their ministry, does the outcome of their ministry, does it look like the outcome and fruit of the ministry of Jesus? Jesus at his highest popularity says something that makes thousands walk away. We're looking to have fruit that looks like Jesus. And then Jesus goes one further in verse 20. He says, you can identify a tree by its fruit and you can identify people by their actions. Jesus says that what we do equates with who we are in such a way, in such a way that who a person is will be revealed by what they do. And I want to explore this a little bit because Jesus is, Jesus, like one of the things we like to say is like the Bible never contradicts itself unless it means to, okay? This is one of those times where it likes to mean to because earlier in chapter seven, Jesus said, don't judge others. Don't judge lest you be judged. Remove the plank from your own eyes. Then you can see the speck in your brother's eye. Offer them, you can't, you, if you've got dirt on your face, what you should probably do is wipe your face off and then hand your friend a washcloth right? But what, then at the same time, Jesus says, he says, do not judge others, but at the same time, uh, judge others, identify them, test them. He says that there's a difference between immature judgmental criticism and wise and discerning understanding of the person that you're dealing with. And this is why this is important. I meet people all the time who want to talk to me about like their faith life and their Christianity, but it's hollow, there's something missing there. And with spiritual maturity comes a level of discernment, not that we're policing everybody's behavior, not that we're uh, micromanaging everybody's spiritual lives, but you know who you're dealing with. And in those moments when you meet these people who um, we were just at Dan and Caitlin Collins' house and they were showing us this piece of furniture, their TV stand, that was solid wood that they got from some Amish dude in Indiana. And we were marveling because what they spent on that versus what you would spend on like this particle board thing from Target that would fall apart the minute that you moved, it was very different. And uh, it, this was that the real thing was actually cheaper. I mean, all of a sudden we start to have a spiritual detection level for when we're dealing with particle board furniture and real wood furniture. And in those moments when we come to grips with that, we hear the words of Isaiah where he says, these people approach me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Your hearts are far from me. I mean, it's these kinds, and, and listen, I'm not trying to police your behavior, but I'm also trying to give you some explanatory power for why you like bump up against Christians that give the rest of us a bad name because they're like trumpeting the fact that they're a church member and this, this, and this other, but they're like terrible people, right? Jesus is calling 
for more than a right. Remember that Jesus is calling for more. He's calling for a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. He's looking for more than outward signs of righteousness, no matter how fastidious or perfect or strict. He is looking for more than fulfillment of religious obligation. He is looking for a a righteousness that springs from the heart, an intimate connection between what we do and the condition of our heart. I mean, he's looking for people who don't just do the Sermon on the Mount because that's what Jesus said. He is looking for people who have been moved by what the Sermon on the Mount has said, who have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had a transformative experience in his presence, and from that place of a changed heart, something else happens. John Wesley, who was like a preacher and a professional Christian and a missionary and all of these kinds of things, has this moment where years into his faith journey, he's hearing the commentary on the book of Romans by Martin Luther, of all things, read out loud, and he says, my heart was strangely warmed. Years of fastidious obedience totally redefined by an experience where his heart was strangely warmed. Jesus isn't looking just for adherence to the teaching. He's looking for something else, something that he calls doing the will of my heavenly Father, not just doing righteous things, but doing them with a heart for them. And so I like how the message handles verses 21 through 23. He says, knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. Easy obedience and cheap grace, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is just doing religious duty. This this serious obedience, doing what my father wills, comes from a deeper place. He says, I can see it now at the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message and we bashed the demons and our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. Our branding was amazing. And do you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say you missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves feel important. You don't impress me one bit. In fact, he'll say, you're out of here. See, what we find impressive is these God-sponsored projects and the big branding and the cool new thing. We find giving and serving and church attendance to be very impressive. We find a long resume of spiritual accomplishment to be impressive. We find signs and wonders and miracles and healing impressive, but the only problem is that what impresses us and what impresses Jesus are two very different things. This is a text that gets me into trouble anytime I preach it because inevitably... Somebody comes up to me and said, well, all I heard you say that is that if you've been, especially when you walk around with older Christians, all I heard you say is that if you've been a member of this church for 50 years, you're going to hell. And I want to be crystal clear, that is never something I've ever said. What I have said was, if you have been a member of this church or any church for 50 years and served and given and attended faithfully, you might be going to hell. <laughs> and, and, and the thing I'm, I'm not saying that, the text is, What scripture wants us to have clear is that we can do all sorts of religious and spiritual things. We can do very, very powerful things and still miss the boat. I mean, the text is talking about doing the will of my Father in heaven. And you better believe that these people who in the NLT says cast out demons in his name and prophesy in his names and perform miracles in his names, they think that they are doing the will of the Father who is in heaven and yet find after a lifetime of religious activity that something is missing. 
that something is missing. And so we're left with two options. We're left either to be angry and disgruntled and disdainful that Jesus would dare speak out of turn, or we can take Jesus at his word, the Jesus who we declare is above all things smart. You cannot confess Jesus is Lord without first confessing Jesus is smart. And we can hear him saying these hard, hard things and begin to reprogram and rearrange our life around him. This text, I love how the NIV puts it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, as if it's not that hard of a thing to communicate, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And there are two, I mean, we have to get clear on what is it What is doing the will of my Father? It is this from heart out obedience where when we do come to worship and we do participate in small groups and we are engaged in reading scripture and praying and in the spiritual practices and when we're doing the devotional and we're listening to the music on Christian radio that we're doing more than just consuming a religious product or engaging in a religious obligation that something is happening at the level of our heart that something is happening at the very level of the foundations of our character and our who we are-ness so that we look more and more like Jesus because there is coming a day where our, the connection between our outward actions and our inward heart will be made plain. Jesus says on that day, he's talking about Yom Yahweh, he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about judgment day. The book of Acts says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising them from the dead, that on the basis of the resurrection, having furnished proof to them, God will call all people before himself. And in that moment, our relationship to Jesus, and in particular, how our heart and our actions connected as they related to Jesus, will become plain. Here's this interesting thing that the New Testament does. This is why it's confusing sometimes, because the New Testament insists that we are saved by faith, but judged by works. Read the New Testament. Read read all of Scripture. It says you're saved by faith, but you're judged by your works. So how do we hold those things two together. Again, right, the Bible doesn't contradict itself unless it wants to, unless it wants us to appreciate tension. In the courtroom of the kingdom of God, this is John Piper, in the courtroom of the kingdom of God, all the world will be assembled before the righteous judge and all will be guilty of capital offense and yet some will be acquitted and others condemned and the deepest reason for the separation is that one group has been forgiven because of their identification with Christ through faith and the other has not. But what scripture is trying to explain is that in that courtroom a witness will be called forth to testify to the reality of faith or its absence. And that witness for the prosecution is our deeds. Deeds of the mind as well as the body, attitudes as well as actions. At the end of our life on judgment day, all of the righteous and unrighteous things that we have done, all of these miracles and all of the Christian things will play out before us. But the question will be, is that reflective of a heart transformed by the gospel or reflective of fulfilling a religious obligation? 
our actions will bear witness to what is most important, our knowledge and connection, our knowledge of and our connection to Jesus. The most important word in these verses is no. I never knew you because what we know and have known is what is revealed on that day. And it is not a word of mere association or understanding or fact recall. It is not two plus two equals four. It's not that Kyle knows his address. It's that Kyle knows Steph. It's this Greek word that implies more than just fact recall. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 4, it says, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived. And kids, if you don't know what that means, go home and ask your mom. Um, she, she, Adam knew, gnosko, his wife, and she conceived. And I'm not trying to start some weird like Jesus cult. We have this joke in leadership, like, well, we'll be like, cult, 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 right? Like, that's not what we're going with. What I am trying to show us and unpack for us is the standard of intimacy which we find in Scripture. Jesus is looking for way more than church attendance and giving and serving. He is looking for more than missions trips. He is looking for more than checking of boxes. He is looking for those things as we participate in them to stir something in us deeply, a deeper knowing and being known by Jesus, which is why A.W. Tozer says, the continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the spirit of the redeemed person is the throbbing heart of New Testament faith. I'm going to read that again. The continuous and unembarrassed, gentlemen, unembarrassed, the continuous and unembarrassed and an unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the spirit of the redeemed man or woman is the throbbing heart of the New Testament faith. The continuous, the continuous, hi Jenna's phone. There's this British turn of phrase for when you're um, at the table and you're done eating Uh, but you keep eating, you know what I mean? Like you're just picking. And they call it like just filling up the corners when you're eating. That's what Jesus is looking for more than filling up the corners, okay? Jesus is looking for more than tucking a little bit of him around the edges of our life. He is looking for a whole reprogramming of what it means to be human. And so... We're going to enter our kind of response time. And if you weren't here last week, we're kind of adjusting some things where we're going to sing a song and you can do a couple of things. Um, If you want to stand and sing, I think that's great. On the back of your program, you'll notice like two boxes. What is God saying? What am I going to do about it? It can be a great opportunity to journal that. Some of you are extra spiritual and you B-Y-O-N, you bring your own notebook so you can uh, engage with that. Um, We'll take communion after, we'll receive communion after a few minutes, but what, what I'm inviting you to do is just respond to God, and here, here are some ways that I could invite you to do that. First of all, where do you need to surrender the outward trappings of religion? Like, what are the things that you're doing, even in the name of getting closer to God? What are the things that you're doing in the name of getting closer to God that are actually drawing you further away or not really picking up any momentum. And by the group I'm being discipled in this week, I finally said the following thing out loud. I finally said, I really do not like to pray. 
I really don't. It doesn't create the intimacy that all of these people that write about prayer seem to tell me it's supposed to create. It doesn't feel like it picks up traction. I don't feel like I'm hearing God on the other end. I feel like I'm kind of just engaged in this religious obligation. I don't like to pray. Let me be clear. I don't think my problem is that prayer doesn't work. I think it's a default in my, or a fault in my understanding or practice of prayer. But what are the religious trappings of religion? I mean, what, what is just anything that you need to lay down this week that is taking you away from Jesus? Uh, I was in some conversation with one of our leaders and we were talking about kind of where we are as a community and they said something interesting. They were like, there's really nothing more that they need to know. There's nothing more that we need to know. It's a matter of doing, not knowing, right? Um, how do you respond with that moving toward knowing of Jesus? I mean, we're going to sing a song. I'm laying down all my religion. I want to know you, right? I used to think I could box you in, but I'm laying down my religion. How can you respond to God? Where are the areas of my life that have spiritually gone cold? And where are the areas of my life that I want to see warm again? Where are the areas of my life that I'm seeing the warmth and I can press into? So we pray and we'll do some responding and then we'll receive communion. So Father, those places that we have replaced knowing you with mere religion, the places that we have, you know, a lot of us are new to following Jesus in this room and that means like we've, kind of we're doing more in the last year to year and a half than we've done in our lifetimes to follow Jesus. Um, but you don't want us to stay there. So Jesus, would you come and would you invite and challenge us um, this morning? Amen. Amen. So you can sing. You can sing standing or sitting. You can sit and journal. You can, this is your time with Jesus. So we come to this table because we need brought back to a place of unembarrassed exchange of love. Even though just one day of the week we're reminded that Jesus was broken for us, that he offered us to him, offered us himself, that even though just one day of week we were reminded of how he was poured out for us. We really do come to this table knowing that he is continuously offering us himself. He is continuously presenting himself to us. And that's why we practice communion a few ways. First, if you have a pulse, you're welcome at this table because as long as you're breathing, Jesus is offering you himself. And second, this is the reason why the hand sanitizer gets into play because Jesus offers us himself. He's a gift. Grace is given. It is not taken. It's not plucked off of something. And so someone will be here and you'll, they will hand you the bread and you can dip it in the cup and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so um, let's do Steph and let's do Jairus Banning because he almost had a role. Um, yeah, and actually, Rebecca Stewart. That'd be great. So we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup. That in the eating and drinking of them, we might be reminded of your goodness toward us.
that we might be reminded of your giving and your offering yourself to us even when we are so distracted by lesser things. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Table is open. I was at a training this summer for like doing ministry with young adults and they said this thing like reach more young adults by sending them away. And I'm like, well, we're really good and good at the sending them away part <laughs> because a lot of our folks have been moving to places everywhere. Uh, last week we sent Colleen and Mary Kate off to China and Tiffin respectively. And now we're sending Danielle out of state as she's got a new job. And so I want to pray for her and bless her as we send her. So would you bow with me just for a second? Father, thanks for Danielle and thank you for... Um, Everybody brightens a room, some by entering and some by leaving, and Danielle brightens a room by entering. And so, God, I pray that uh, the brightness that she brings into the room and her vivaciousness and her energy and her sense of wonder and adventure would be a blessing to people in this new season. And so, God, we pray that there would be, like, that she would meet people that are praying for friends, that she would meet people that are praying uh, for community, and that... Uh, she would be enfolded into a family that knows and loves her and sees her. God, be before her and behind her and with her, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. I will see you next week. Peace. <laughs>